G'day and welcome back to the second episode of the Talking Leadership TV podcast series. Thanks for joining me. My guest today is Jonathan Mamoral. He has been a supporter of the podcast and I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation, which today focuses on employment law and some issues that small, medium and large businesses very much need to be aware of, particularly leaders in those organizations. Jonathan is a director of NB Employment Law, which was formerly known as NB Lawyers, the lawyers for employers and an expert in employment law. With a trade union background, Jonathan possesses a unique insight into how employee advocates and lawyers work, allowing him to provide strategic and practical advice that keeps employers one step ahead of the game. Over the last 10 years, Jonathan has led a team of employment lawyers and helped hundreds of employers understand their legal requirements, mitigate their risk and liability, protect their reputation and achieve their goals for business growth and expansion. Thank you again for supporting this podcast and I'll hand over to Jonathan. Jonathan, thanks for joining me, mate. Look, we've got what I'm calling a um, help for for businesses that um, don't understand what's coming with changes to HRIR, employment law, that are going to come into effect early in the new year. And part of why I wanted to have this discussion with you is one we've we've spoken about this before on the on the talking leadership podcast series but now that we're moving to talking leadership tv i wanted to come back one to touch base uh, as far as anything but two to get really specific about a leadership topic and understanding this for leaders at the moment is pretty critical so we're going to talk about paid domestic violence leave and uh some other ir changes including some five practical issues for employers to consider around human resources so let's start with part one paid domestic violence leave. Um, let's go through defining what that means now and, and some other elements there. So over to you, mate. Yeah, uh, thanks, Eric. So paid domestic violence leave has arrived. Um, it's going to be now part of the national employment standards. So uh, currently as it stands, you have national employment standards requirements for five days unpaid leave. Um, there'll be now 10 days paid family and domestic violence leave in each 12-month period. And so there's a few interesting parts to it, but from a holistic perspective, the first part is that um, employers larger than 15 employees, these new laws are going to start on 1 February 2023, so it's it's quite soon. And for those with fewer than 15 employees, so those who are small businesses, that obligation is going to begin on 1 August 2023. So just as a you know, um, a baseline, uh, family and domestic violence um, means or the behaviour is um, something that is violent or threatening. And that behaviour could be um, seeking to coerce or control um, and causing fear uh, by um, an employee's close relative, um, a current partner, a former intimate partner, or even a member of their um, household. And there's even a further definition of what is a close relative, but you know, that could be a de facto partner, could be a parent, could be grandparent, grandchild, sibling, um, could be any, any, you know, could be a spouse or a former spouse as well. So there's quite a bit of a definition of what, um, in terms of what um, family uh, domestic violence actually means, Eric. So on on that score and understanding what domestic violence means in the mm-hmm. workplace, do from your estimation, and you talk to a lot of businesses on a fairly regular basis, are our leaders' heads around what this means now, let alone with the changes that are coming? Do you think we're up 
to snuff when it comes to understanding what this means? The unfortunate answer to that question, Eric, is, is no. Um, we've got a lot of um, people, managers and human resources, people in culture, reaching out, talking to us about these, these ch changes uh, that are quite recent, that are coming in place around family and domestic violence leave, and that's completely understandable. Uh, but I think considering the, 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 the time of the year, um, potentially employers are not really ahead of the game in terms of understanding what this actually means. Because um, what it actually is, is that, one, it's actually a paid entitlement, but it's not an entitlement like, for example, annual leave that accumulates over time. So the actual employee... Um, once they commence employment with the employer, they're automatically entitled to 10 days of paid family domestic violence leave within 12 months. So it doesn't accrue from year to year, but you automatically, that, that employee automatically gets those 10 days um, right up front. And in, in that vein and to prove that this is happening, to, that this gets a bit dicey, I guess, because of the nature of what, domestic violence is and and who could be perpetrating it we we've had a discussion offline around notice and evidence requirements can yeah. you walk us through that please yeah yeah um so this is where it gets potentially a little bit tricky for employers so the notice requirements for an employee um really all they need to do is just need to give as much notice as possible okay and that that really makes sense from a practical perspective for employers this is where it gets a little bit tricky because yes an employer has a right to ask an employee for evidence to show they're dealing with family domestic violence um, and that whatever they need to do, you know, let's say they have to make arrangements for their safety or attend court hearings or attend counselling, whatever that might be, um, they, they, can, they need to show evidence they're dealing with this and it's not practical to do, do so outside of work hours. But if you really think about that statement, that statement I've just said, I think employers really need to tread very, very carefully in that respect. Now, one part obviously is the sensitivities around this and also understanding how that employee feels and provide, trying to provide that support um, to that employee. Um, but also in particular, take into account that any actions taken by the employer may cause undue exacerbation of the problem. So an employer doesn't want to be in a situation where they've exacerbated whatever the, the problem might be around um, the, the, the domestic violence, uh, which may well may or may not cause some type of injury down the line, already has caused injury. But if for an employer, they don't want to be exacerbating that type of uh, another injury as well. And that could lead to things like workers' compensation, just as an example, right, um, where they've... Um, They've actually now manifested <clears throat> manifested a, an illness, um, as, as an example, or maybe even a mental illness. So there has to be a lot of sensitivities from an employer, has to be quite a bit of training for managers around this point, and a really good understanding from the human resources, people and culture teams, and therefore a really good understanding from senior leadership. Yeah, you could see where this could go to poo very quickly if, if yes. these investments aren't um, aren't made. Yeah, it, it can it could get complicated. So, just briefly, casual employees can they access this leave? Uh, yes, the answer is yes. So, 
Um, this is probably one of the biggest changes is that casual employees can now access um, domestic, a paid domestic violence leave. Now, when I say leave, they're not, it's, it's just, it's a paid, a paid leave or a paid entitlement. Um, but basically it's whatever hours are rostered on for that casual period engagement, they'll get that payment. Um, so um, if they're rostered for uh, 30 hours that week, um, they will get the payment of 30 hours uh, for, for that for that week for their domestic violence leave. Yeah, good that to know. Sense. Yeah, no, no, good to know. Mm. Um, so the payment of domestic violence leave, yeah. what does that look like? Yeah, so the payment of it, um, so for full-time and uh, part-time employees, it's going to be on the basis of the wage that would be normally entitled to. Um, so, you know, your basic wages, but even your incentive-based payments, your bonuses, loadings, allowances, overtime or penalty rates, and, and any other um, separately identifiable amounts. Um, it's really important to also understand that apart from the payment process, um, the information itself, so any information that's provided by um, the employee in regards to notice evidence requirements, that information cannot be used for other purposes. So, for example, if an employer is looking to try and use disclose information about the uh, domestic violence for, say, a nefarious reason, um, could be a workplace investigation or a performance management, then that's an absolute no-no. And there are um, strict provisions under the Act which will prohibit that, and there are penalties that go with that, plus potentially some um, information, uh, general information breaches, information privacy breaches as well. Um, now, there are exceptions, of course, in the employee consents. So, you know, it could be that, um, you know, they want to be referred to a counsellor or something like that. Um, obviously, if they're required to deal with that information, it needs to be, uh, sorry, if that information needs to be released by law, okay, so, so um, it might be that um, police require that information or it's necessary to protect the life, health or safety of the employee or another person. Yeah, one, thank you for that, uh, Jonathan. One particular question I've got mm. here for you is what could the domestic violent leave, violence leave be used for specifically? Are there parameters on how that leave can be used or it's just paid and the employee does what he or she wants to do with that um, with that income? Well, keeping in mind the, the notice and evidence requirements and, as I said as well, employers need to be very, very careful about re requesting that. But, you know, the normal examples, and they're not really limited, but the normal examples would be uh, making arrangements for the safety of a close relative. Uh, for example, uh, relocation, that's a good one. Um, attending court hearings, um, uh, going to the police or attending police, accessing police services, going to counselling, and, and also making appointments for a medical uh, professionals or financial professionals or um, even um, lawyers as well. So one thing to consider here, and, mm. and this is the the beauty of having the the this podcast process as a way yep. to get the message out, Jonathan, is what do leaders now, employers and human resource uh, personnel and leaders in, in that sense do right now with these changes coming? Eric, I think it's a really good question. I think previously in the past, it, this has been a very difficult question to answer about an employee going through domestic domestic uh, violence. 
you know, there are definitely um, organizations out there that can that can help from a, on a formalized basis. Um, but for employers, it's always been a tricky situation. Um, most employers, I think, uh, would look to support and help their employee going through this uh, this this type of issue. Um, keeping in mind that, especially if there's small a small business, um, the productivity issues that they need in terms of trying to fill those roles, that's another issue they need to take into account. But I think these changes do require a very specific shift in thinking when it comes to domestic violence and in particular being disclosed to an employer. Um, now, one big part, in my view, is management training. So educating leaders, educating managers on uh, the changes around domestic violence leave, um, what they are really required to do in terms of um, providing that space for them, for it to be disclosed, one, two, for those evidence requirements, and three, what needs to be done from a legal perspective, especially around um, disclosure information, especially around um, the leave itself, the, the payment of the leave, for example. And the other thing as well is that um, by educating leaders and managers to have or deal with conversations that are probably maybe a little bit out of their comfort zone, um, but understanding there is a backbone of law that supports this is, in my view, one of the biggest things they could do in terms of changing that shift or, sorry, changing that thinking around um, domestic violence. The other one, of course, is a compliance one, which is updating uh, policies and processes um, to ensure compliance with the new provisions. So it could be simply that if an employee is experiencing domestic violence, domestic violence, that the um, person um, should be um, able to um, go to specific people in the organisation and disclose this and the people who receive that disclosure um, have steps they can take to um, support that employee and then get them to access um, the leave itself in, in a timely fashion. So I think there are, there are definitely different ways to handle the, these changes, but it will require um, a good mental shift from employers and HR and managers and really open to learning um, how to deal with that, um, especially from a practical perspective, from a employee support perspective, and of course, understanding the, the, the legal risk and liability that goes with it. Yeah, definitely the um, head in the sand, nothing to see here approach is not going to be acceptable on this one. And and also some, something you've thrown up there that I often don't think about is when you're a single solo operator, you don't have a HR function and it's all on you, then this this gets a lot trickier, particularly if if we're assuming that smaller businesses have those policies and procedures, they're ready to go. And so, yeah, this this one is one to keep an eye on, definitely, mate. Um, if we can, let's move to the other IR changes that are coming. Yep. And there's five areas we can have a quick chat about. Definitely the first one, pay secrecy. Walk us through that. Mm. So um, as a lawyer for employers at ME Employment Law, I talked about this many, many months ago, um, knowing that this was potentially one of, the, one of the biggest changes. I thought that also in my view that this change would probably come under the radar a little bit 
And then once there would be a few cases, then we really see the outcry. And I don't think I'm wrong. Um, this is probably one of the biggest changes um, going forward. And look, the, the new changes um, <clears throat> under the Secure Jobs uh, Better Pay Bill, which have come in recently, there's a couple of big um, headlines uh, or big premises to it. But the, the big main one is um, basically gender equity or, or gender pay equity in particular. And pay secrecy or pay secrecy clauses. So what they mean by pay secrecy clauses, essentially, if you think about your um, confidentiality clauses in your contract, so normal confidentiality clauses in the contract will have um, that uh, salary or your salary is actually a confidential information of the business, okay? And usually, and there's quite a few cases that talk about it, that disclosure of, of that information can be deemed to be uh, misconduct and even potentially serious misconduct. What these changes do is basically prohibit those provisions in the contract. Okay, so what it means is that pay information or seller information is no longer uh, deemed confidential information. But even goes further than that. It also says that um, employees now have the ability to ask and disclose their remuneration. So they can ask about the remuneration to someone else and they can disclose the remuneration to anyone else. Now, basically, this is all about transparency. You know, that's the, that's the basic premise is transparency. And the, the, the first, you know, the, the first purpose of it is the gender equity, which is what I talked about just before. And that's essentially to try and generally lift the remuneration of all staff um, whatever gender that they may be. Uh, but in particular, potentially those who have um, potentially in uh, industries that are in lower paying sectors. So if you think about care sectors, you thought, think about um, uh, childcare, aged care, uh, um, cleaning, those industries where they're traditionally lower paid, um, that is potentially where these changes are starting to come in. But the other area, where the change is going to make a big difference is the other part, which is the pay equity side. And the pay equity um, principle talks more about um, if you have two employees on, on a site, one from labor hire maybe, one working, as, working for the principal employer, then they should be paid, and they're doing the same job, same hours, all that type of stuff, all the things equal, they should be paid the same. So that's the principle that goes with it. Now, I suppose the next question is, what is the problem with this? Or what's the potential problem? Now, other than the obvious of, of people just going around telling each other what they get paid and asking each other what they get paid and making a big deal of it, and a lot of, I assume, there's going to be a lot of people going into the, the, boss's, uh, the boss's office and saying, hey, I want a pay rise. I, just, I, don't, I don't think many people are going to come in saying, I want a pay decrease. I'm sure they'll be saying a lot of say, pay, pay rise. Um, there's a couple of strategic issues. So if you think about what this potentially looks like, and I talked about this uh, previously on, on, on ABC Radio with Sophie Mar for Micah, which was essentially that I think there's potentially a problem here where they're trying to make it almost like what the public service has, which is you have certain levels in the public service and you pay according to that level. Um, and you might even have an enterprise agreement and you get paid to that enterprise agreement. Now, what I think the problem with this in the private sector is potentially that 
you're going to have issues around rewarding discretionary effort. Okay, so if you're trying to potentially even uh, even training as well or succession uh, planning. So if you want to pay someone a little bit more, they might do the same job, same seniority, but you're doing on the base they have more putting in more discretionary effort, and also potentially that they're going to you know go get promoted to a new role. So you you know you're, you're giving them that sort of short bit of an incentive, then you may not be able to do that because culturally that might be a problem with that the other employees in that same role. Um, the other thing is going to be keeping up with market salaries. As we all know, and I don't need to talk about this too much, but market salaries are going up, going up really high. So potentially you have companies who have spent a lot more in wages on people that are just hiring now and potentially that hasn't caught up with the staff that have inside the team. Now, you might say, well, that's fair enough. They should equal out. But of course, you're going to have budgetary pressures from that. You're going to have costing pressures from that. So, I, and also, as well, the other thing as well is that, um, you know, the workplace culture, right? You know, there's, there is going to be an issue, you know, pay more to retain staff and potentially can cause a toxic behaviour um, when staff know they're getting paid different remuneration. So we now know it's going to be, it's going to be you know, the, the confidential information clause around pay are going to be banned and prohibited under a contract. So contracts will have to be reviewed um, with that in mind. Um, but also understanding that, yeah, there's going to be the, the, the bigger issue is the more the backlash um, from any disclosures. Yeah, um, we could have a whole another podcast on where this is potentially going to go. The 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 pay equity thing. One thing I'll note is, um, let's say in a situation, a, a female in the business versus the male, she is a, a significantly better negotiator than her male counterpart and she makes let i don't know let's pick a figure 10 grand more than yep. um male x or many of her male colleagues in the business yep. um that the tension there will be as if it was the opposite way that why are you paying a man doing the same job any different and i think in that sense on both sides it makes a lot of sense to do this but if could you could the argument be run and I'm only speaking yep. here that the 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 female in that example is significantly more experienced, has more credentials, and um, can make the argument that her pay rate is what the market is prepared to offer her. All this will do is will mean those that aren't getting that same pay rate will make a beeline to the door or will put that up with pressure to get more. Uh, funds in their accounts because they they may feel that they're being hard done by. So this gets really interestingly complicated and potentially toxic um, yes. in the workplace, but de definitely an advocate for uh, we do the same job, we get paid the same. But if you can negotiate better than somebody else, should gender matter in that um, equation? And I'm not sure what the answer to that question is. I, I, I understand that there's a a pay gap debate happening. And I, I don't know where exactly I fall on this because the arguments for and against um, are quite compelling one way and quite compelling the other. But, um, you know, where, where does an individual's um, experience and ability to be a better negotiator come into it? So why negotiate at all now? Like if, if there are going to be bans set, then that, that 
that that may be a positive for the employer that you set certain bands and you're not going to move them because you don't want to potentially um, discriminate against somebody else on that same level within your business, surely. I, I don't see any way it can really go. Um, I think those private companies already that um, are, say, quasi-government or have uh, some government um, overflow, um, not-for-profit organisations, organisations that are very um, have very heavy enterprise agreements, I suspect they'll just be bans. So just have a band and, that, you know, you reach that band and you have the certain criteria to get those bands. I think that's, that's going to happen. I'm very interested to see what other private companies outside of that sphere, that sphere will do um, because, uh, like, to take professionals, for example, um, you know, take any profession uh, or professionals, um, they'll be very interesting to see because mark, the market the market is usually the big indicator, but so are budgets. So they're the probably two big indicators of, of what the salary is going to be paid. So it'd be interesting to see if that just pushes salaries up. Um, I suspect that's what's going to happen. And then I suspect what's going to happen is going to push up costs. So general costs for those services will then uh, grow. Um, but it'd be interesting to see if they enter some type of band arrangement, um, you know, some type of uh, band and, and a criteria um, to equalise that. Or do some organisations just run the gauntlet and have, you know, people are just paid in a normal way. Um, you know, if you get discretionary efforts, succession planning, whatever it might be, and but people aren't, and they know that people are going to talk about their pay and they have to defend it at some point. So is that what, what some organisations might do? So I think that could potentially be something that some organisations will do. I, I don't know the answer, and I suspect we'll find out um, in the next couple of months, uh, early January, to, uh, sorry, early 2023, we will find out um, how these pay secrecy clauses really flow through because people are going to start talking um, and we're going to start, I suspect we'll also start to see some lash out from employees, and I suspect we'll see a number of employees uh, quit, file unfair dismissal claims, potentially general protections claims on the basis of, say, discrimination on gender or something like that. I suspect we're going to see quite a few of those claims in, in early 2023. Yeah. Oh, sorry, early to, 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 to mid-2023. Yeah, because defending differential pay, you, you want to have um, a good reason to do that. Um, or at least defend uh, your decision to do that. Wow, that this could this could get quite uh, interesting. Well, here's another podcast we've um, set up for ourselves in six uh, to twelve months' time, Jonathan. Definitely. Yep. Um, all right. The other area to talk about sexual harassment. Where are we going with that? Well, there's two parts to this. Um, so I'll talk about sexual harassment from the, the Fair Work Act changes first, and then I'll talk about psychosocial risks in the context of Queen of, of our Queensland watches because I think it'd be very interesting but the first part is um now sexual harassment there's all sexual harassment's always been considered misconduct serious misconduct there's always been avenues in general protections unfair dismissal to some extent discrimination to some extent to uh, even workplace bullying to some extent to um file uh, a claim for an employee for sexual harassment but 
And what the changes do is specifically have a specific express provision that prohibits sexual harassment. And it's, it's a natural extension of the workplace health and safety laws. Um, and it's gonna, it basically says it'll, that, that um, there'll be unlawful sexual harassment um, and, and discrimination are workplace health and safe, safety hazards, okay? Now, that's the first part. So that sexual harassment itself is going to be, is, is considered a health and safety hazard. The second part is that there is a positive obligation to manage the psychosocial risks to take all reasonable steps to eliminate sexual harassment. So let's just, just break down that wording to take all reasonable steps to eliminate sexual harassment. Now, originally when the Human Rights Commission came out um, with the report um, that had a whole pile of recommendations, the positive obligation was about eliminating sexual harassment. So thankfully they've tracked that back so that it's to take all reasonable steps. So it does give an employer a chance to take some steps to eliminate sexual harassment. But what it means is that there is a proactive obligation, all right? And now, not just because there's, now, there's, like, there's a further avenue, apart from unfair dismissal, general protections and discrimination, you now have stop sexual harassment orders. They work sort of similar to the stop workplace bullying orders, but you're going to hear a lot more about stop sexual harassment orders because unlike stop workplace bullying orders that you can file for as an employee, stop sexual harassment orders actually have a compensatory element. So you can actually obtain a compensation if you win a stop sexual harassment order. While with workplace bullying, um, at least not in that particular jurisdiction, you can't obtain uh, compensation. There's other things I can do, train, uh, force an employer to do training, uh, force an employer to um, apologise. There's a few things I can do, but they can't, um, you know, force them in terms of um, uh, compensation. But in sexual harassment, they can. Now, the new provision also captures behaviour that's not directed at an, at an individual. So that includes sexual innuendo, banter, um, banter of a sexual nature, sorry, sexualised jokes, and displays of offensive, offensive material. So what I suspect will happen is that sexual harassment complaints will definitely increase. I also suspect that, you know, sexualised banter, um, sexualised um, jokes, that, that will fast become um, an area which is going to be focused on in terms of uh, looking to eliminate or at the very least reduce because it's going to, the, the obligation, the proactive obligation, it's going to be on the employer to take all reasonable steps to eliminate this. Um, my mind's just buzzing yep. with questions, but one thing that comes to mind as a, a, a tool for businesses of any size is to have a checklist and go through, have I complied with changes? Do I have systems in place? And when you talk about a, a positive obligation, this this that's just another way of saying you need to do some stuff in the business to demonstrate that you're complying or else. And that when you take it to that realm of workplace health and safety, then there's a whole lot of case law and a whole lot of legislation to back the need to be actively doing 
something and, and walking away and saying, no, what I've done is enough may not be quite where you stand if you're not over not overviewing what it is that you're doing. And um, yeah, again, on this one, any right thinking person would think, yeah, you can't sexually harass people. And uh, long gone are the days now, according to you, if, if I'm hearing you right, that if you're having a joke with a mate and someone walks by, their, their offence taking at that is now considered part of this change that you can't make people uncomfortable even though the conversation's not directed at you, whereas once that was not the case. Is that right? Cor- correct. So the, the reality is that if you're in a workplace where that is happening and, you know, a lot of people say to me, oh, but, you know, we're all friends and all this type of stuff, and that's that's great. But it only takes one person to make a complaint, and that all implodes because basically once one person complains about someone, they'll say, well, wait on. Joe said, Joe's been saying the same thing for years. Oh, no. And all Joe says, oh, well, Rebecca's been saying the same thing. And so all of a sudden, it's the whole the whole division, the whole team, the whole workplace, and you have a massive problem. Because now, what are you going to do? Investigate the whole thing? And maybe you do. Maybe you investigate the whole lot. And I think you know what the conclusion is going to be. It's not going to be great, right? So... The, the answer to, to answer that question or what people say to me is that, oh, you know, we're all friends and stuff. I said, well, it takes one person. And usually it's going to be someone's either gone through something really, really rubbish at home, you know, they, you know gone through a divorce or, you know, I don't know, they've had the second twin or something, you know, the mind's not there and they're struggling. Physically they're struggling, whatever it is, emotionally they're struggling. Or it's a very new new employee. The, the, the two types that come through. And I suspect... We'll go, they're going to be a lot more perceptive to these changes, these sexual harassment changes, because now you have a direct application that can be filed. You don't have to go through workers' comp. You don't have to go through workplace health and safety. You don't have to go through general protections. A direct application that says this company is being sued for sexual harassment. Yeah. So now there's a, this proactive obligation. And look, the big thing for, for me, I think there's two parts to it, management training. I can't stress it enough that, you know, the MB employment law team has been doing a lot of management training with a lot of uh, clients, in particular on sexual harassment, workplace bullying and performance management. They're the three. But sexual harassment is, is, is a tricky one because um, I think a lot of people understand that it is misconduct. There is a misconduct element to it. But this makes it, makes it much, much more serious. Because now we've got a positive obligation. So, yes, you've got that PCBU, workplace health and safety obligation on the individual, right, managers as well. Now you've got pure sexual harassment application orders that can be made against the employer. And now we're, 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 in, we're in the troublesome space now. A straight-out application can be made. So that is a problem. The other one that I think is, is really interesting in this space is the psychosocial risks, okay? So basically what's happened is that um, recently, so this is for our Queensland Queensland viewers, but recently in um, Queensland, <clears throat> um, changes have been made to the Work Health and Safety Act, um, which means, which has, uh, which says that um, a PCBU, which is a person, person conducting a, a business undertaking, 
must ensure, so far as reasonably practical, that the, the psychological health of workers and the elimination or minimization of risk to psychological health arising from work-led stress. Okay. So what that means is that there, there is a new primary duty, which is to eliminate or minimize the risks of basically mental illness or work-related mental illness. All right. And there's two parts to it. So one, they need to, there's a requirement to recognize and consider the psychosocial risks to meet the primary duty, uh, duty sorry, primary duty. And then um, that there's an express obligation to manage and identify those risks via risk management and through, say, the hierarchy of controls. So that's really, I think it's a really important shift um, to understand, Eric, because what that actually means is that there's actually express positive duty to eliminate or minimize the risk of um, psychological health. And this could be coming from uh, sexual harassment or workplace bullying, but it also could come from just the job itself. So think about call centers, think about um, uh, maybe uh, retail, uh, retail operators in a really heavy condensed retail um, setting. Uh, it could be air traffic controllers, those who are working really stressful stressful jobs which could create a um, mental health or mental illness issue. So now what's going to happen is there's going to be a positive obligation on duty holders to actually determine and determine the control measures to be implemented and then um, other relevant matters they need to put in place. It's, it's, a really, um, it's a really big change in Queensland, uh, but obviously the whole crux of it is to try and reduce these uh, psychosocial risks, essentially psychological um, uh, claims and mental illness, reduced mental illness overall. Yeah, I've got, as a lay person, I'm confused and mm -hmm. um, would definitely need to ask you the following. So yes. let's, um, and go for it. You used a good example around uh, high stress jobs like, yep. and let's take a air traffic controller. I yep. couldn't think of a more, stressful job because if you get yep. that wrong you've got a plane load of people that could get killed like that yes that that would create all sorts of stressors but um do employers now need to be more discriminating and i don't mean that in that negative way about who they employ yep. by potentially insisting on psychological tests and understanding the mental health of, of a new employee before they put them in that situation, because let's say someone slips through that system and they have an undiagnosed um, uh, mental health concern that they didn't mm -hmm. know about, and it gets exacerbated because of the stress in the workplace. Yeah. To what degree can an employer um, account for that in the structure of the work if by its nature, the work is stressful? So being a police officer, and we've seen that recently that, there are risks inherent in being yeah. a police officer. There are risks inherent in being a um, someone who works in the role of, of uh, in, in airports. There are risks with some jobs that just cannot be um, um, uh, engineered away. So is there a defence to this for some industries just because of the nature of the work? Well, that's what this is all about. These, these changes are all about... Um, 
in the Workplace Health and Safety Act, Work Health and Safety Act, is that you're now required to not only think about this as a risk, but all, and not just that you're required to eliminate, and if you can't eliminate it, minimise that risk. So as an example, if you, if you think about, you know, um, you know, tests that you might run um, on a person's um, health and well-being before they start a job, well, that could be a preventative measure. And I think that's going to be a part of um, what needs to be done to reduce that risk or elim sorry, eliminate the risk or reduce that risk. Um, there's going to be uh, definitely a WHS process that needs to be implemented. Um, and, you know, just as an example, just here are a couple of things that, that stick out. It could be the, the systems of work. It could be the environmental conditions of the workplace. It could be design and layout of the, of the, of the person's workplace or accommodation. It could be the, um, the workplace interactions or behaviours. It could be the, 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 the training or the lack of training, the supervision or lack of supervision. Um, and it, it, will, it will require um, duty holders to demonstrate things like deadlines are set reasonably, tools and equipment are there that, are support, that, that can actually support them performing the role. Um, you know, it could be that there's a distribution of work capacity. Um, you know, there's going to be some, um, a lot of companies will have to start looking at quite a number of changes in how they do their work. And potentially, I don't know what that restructure would look like, but I suspect that workforce planning is going to be um, greatly changed, taking that all into account. There's one profession that sticks out uh, in my mind, and that's the medical profession. Um, yes. These 80, 90-hour weeks that um, young doctors are put through, that kind of crap may go out the window now because that's not conducive to good mental health or um, protecting someone's psychosocial uh, well-being in the workplace. Um, but this will all get tested in courts, and I'm sure that... Um, people that have got a gripe could now look to this and go, well, maybe you haven't engineered my workplace well enough to to deal with this. Now, I'm sure there's, there has to be some kind of reasonable test here because you can only do so much engineering in a job before um, you ask the question, what's a reasonable investment in prepping the workspace to be amenable to allowing you to, to, to do the job in the first place? And um yeah, look, I, I think this one is a is a, a probably as big as the pay secrecy uh, issue that we talked about. It's going to get interesting, Jonathan. Um, let's move on, sir. Flexible yep. workplace requests. Where are we there? Yeah, so um, one of the aspects of these changes has been the requirement to add flexibility in the workplace, uh, especially as part of the post uh, COVID nineteen. Uh, workplace as well so one of the, the big changes that the um that the act requires is that it gives employees an ability to directly arbitrate any decisions on flexible work arrangements in the fair commission if it can't be resolved in the workplace so <clears throat> basically uh there's a dispute resolution mechanism now um specific one for flexible workplace requests and that you know, they'll, it does speed up the process of making a decision for a request with a requirement to either approve 
or reject the re uh, request in writing within 21 days. So basically um, the Act is putting a bit more pressure on employers to answer the request quickly. And secondly, it's giving an avenue for employees if they don't agree with it, um, that decision to actually um, dispute that in the Fair Commission directly. Excellent. Enterprise bargaining. So there's a lot of changes. I mean, there's a lot of changes in enterprise bargaining. Um, and I think I'll, I'll probably just go through probably the, the big ones that have been changed. But basically there's a couple of uh, big ones around um, single interest uh, bargaining authorization. So it's going to allow the making of multi-employer agreements with a group of employers. Um, take, say, franchisees who share what they call clearly identifiable common interests. Now, the, the, the change on that account is that employers, uh, sorry, sorry, unions um, can now uh, file uh, for a um, enterprise, uh, enterprise agreement or discussions around enterprise bargaining to commence uh, without a majority support determination. So what can actually happen now is that unions can now pick into, or go into a multi-employer bargaining. It could be the same industry. It could be franchises, but it could be in the same industry, for example. And they can actually try and um, bargain for a multi-employer agreement. Um, this is probably a, a, a relatively, no, it is a very big change in enterprise bargaining because it also means that it opens the door for traditionally non-unionized workplaces to be um, essentially negotiated as a collective as well. One one thing to ask there is um, the the issue about union influence in the workplace is has been an ongoing debate for quite some time and and not, we couldn't do it justice in a podcast like this but definitely um, sensing that there there could be some friction on the way particularly in industries that have been. Uh, less than impacted by union influence and now that may increase because of the bargaining that you're talking about is this going to cause more headaches than it's intended to help or is it too early to make that call no it will it will it will definitely cause more bargaining so i mean currently in the process you know I, I, we talk to a lot of clients there's no real point in Enterizing, entering into an enterprise agreement for a number of number of companies. There really isn't, the benefit is very minimal. Um, that, you know, engaging in, in, in individual flexibility agreements has probably been a much better uh, process. Um, potentially the rollout of, you know, different incentive programs, for example, has been much, much better in terms of that. Um, where it's, of course, been a benefit, of course, if you're in a company that contracts to larger organisations or onto projects or acquire it, then yes, having one, one in place is, is very good. Um, and obviously, from, from an admin perspective, it can be a lot easier. 
the probably the other big change other than the multi-employer bargaining is also that um and I'm, I'm also by the way that um thankfully the senate also changed that from you know small businesses are, ex- are essentially exempt from this uh, but they increased that number from 15 to 20. so if you've got um 20 staff um you you're not at risk at union initiated um bargaining um and also if the company has less than 50 staff, they can opt out of the bargaining on the condition that they place the onus on the unions as to why they should be included. So it's still, there's a, still a bit of a mechanism there to save some companies. Um, you know, let's take any franchise, any franchise, um, let's say a burger franchise. I won't say many of them, but you know, say a burger franchise. And they try to negotiate with that burger franchise. It might be that one of those franchisees says, look, I don't want to be involved in this bargaining. And then you might say, well, actually, you should because you're part of this, this burger franchise. But let's take example of an aged care facility, one in, say, Brisbane, another one in Burpengary. And the one in Burpengary says, well, look, I don't want, you know, we don't want to be part of this, this, this bargaining, multi-employer bargaining. Um, and, and the reason for that is because potentially it just completely, uh, it's completely different, it's completely different skews our our, um, our costings and everything else. And that might be enough to, to target, to opt out of the bargaining. And you have to put that obligation on the union to disprove that. So that, that is a little bit there. Um, the other big, big change, um, which I forgot to mention as well, of course, is the, um, so if you think about the long expired enterprise agreements that are still running around, some call them zombie rings. But anyway, um, they're still running around. A union can now uh, rec- um, can now initiate bargaining after five years of past normal expiry date without having a majority support determination in place. So I know there's a number of companies have got long, long, well-expired post uh, past the normal expiry date agreements, they really need to get the thinking caps on because unions were going after them first. No doubt about that. So they got to put the thinking caps on strategically, how this will work, and also take into account that there could be also multi-employer bargaining as well. Yep, another potential rabbit hole to go into. Yeah, yeah. This could get big also. Finally, Jonathan, fixed-term contracts. Yeah, so basically they've come on the microscope um, recently, but the the main premise is that if you've got a fixed-term contract exceeding two years, um, that's going to be restricted and you can't um, then, uh, you know, go for a longer period than a two-year fixed-term contract. You've also got to have an identifiable term of termination. Um, And you can't just simply then, for example, you can't just re-engage them for another two-year fixed-term contract. So what what this basically means, and and look, sorry, it excludes um, uh, uh, government-funded positions, Right, so you know, in particular, not not for profits, for example. So they're exempt from that. So I know there's a lot of, you know, we do a lot of work with not for not for profit organisations, and so they're going to be exempt. 
So I think although the CEO executive teams are on fixed term contracts, they can still have um, further fixed term contracts. But anyone else outside of that, um, yes, once you have the two year fixed term contract, you won't be able to renew for another fixed term contract. Um, basically it's pushing into permanent employment. Yeah, that that um, we, we spoke about this a couple of weeks back offline mm-hmm. and what came to mind, and I've, I've got friends who are in the public service and I'm, I'm an ex-public servant myself, that, um, you know, acting in a role for 12 months, 18 months is fairly typical while people move on or mm-hmm. people take other gigs. So will that affect the public service or are they... They're, no, they're, public service exempt. Yeah, right. so government funded positions... Public service service are exempt, um, but it's going to be outside of those avenues. So, if you have um, a private organisation for profit who has, let's say, a CEO or an executive on a two-year fixed-term contract, you won't be able to enter a new for another two-year fixed-term contract unless it's government-funded. It's a government-funded position. So, if you have someone there for two years, um, and the board has to make a decision, well. Um, You'll put them on a permanent contract. Yeah, right. Oh, can I just just out of curiosity, why is the public sector um, excluded from this? Because this happens as a matter of course across all levels of government all the time. I yeah, I'm, I'm puzzled. Do you, do you have a view or, or have some uh, theories you might want to share? Well, I don't think it's that puzzling. <laughs> um, I, I just say that uh, most likely. From a gun perspective, it doesn't make sense to have um, people not on fixed term contracts. I think it makes perfect sense for them. Which means you'd think from a business perspective for the private sector, um, it also makes sense for them too, because it works both ways. So fixed term contract means it's for a fixed term. So if if an employer says, Well, I don't want them after six months, well, they're gonna pay them out, pay them out for the next year and a half um, and the same same thing vice versa the employee if they say I don't want to be here for six months technically well you're actually on, you're actually on, you're actually you're wedded to us for the next year and a half you can't take another position technically doesn't usually happen technically that's what it is so look I, I think there's gonna be some potential um, um, issues that go with this um, well, I think will I, will I see there be more exemptions? I suspect there'll be more exemptions, but at the moment, the ones that are probably the most greatly affected, those in the not-for-profit sector, for example, uh, are safe as such from this. Uh, in the public sector are safe from this. They always have been. Um, I think those for profit organisations, though, especially those with boards with executive positions for fixed-term contracts, they better start thinking about, especially highly technical skills as well, particularly skilled people, they're going to start thinking, well, we can't do these fixed-term contracts anymore. I'll have to start looking at permanent employment and what that all looks like. Jonathan, this has been um, eye-opening, to say the least, and definitely my contribution to uh, uh, public service to at least our listeners in, in Queensland and Australia more broadly. So, mate, thanks for your time today. No, absolute pleasure, absolute pleasure. Mate, if people want to get in touch with you, particularly in Queensland, what's the best way to contact you? Yeah, um, lawyersforemployers.com.au. That's our uh, website. 
0738765111. We've got offices in uh, Brisbane, uh, Toowoomba, Harvey Bay, uh, Sunshine Coast uh, in Queensland, but we also got an office in Sydney as well, which we're looking to to grow further. So yeah, please get in touch. I know there's, I know these changes um, are going to really hit in early 2023, and I understand that. We also understand that there's going to be some big, some big changes that probably have to be made. Uh, employment contracts, policies and processes, and management training are probably the big, the three. It's what you need to do within those things that's going to be important. I think potentially and you can get across to most most employers that that's going to be important to do those things, to review all that. But you do need a legal element to that. It's good to do the internal reviews, do that. You know, HR review, do that. But get, please, please get that legal aspect too, get that legal advice too, because I suspect different industries will probably need a little bit of nuance uh, to their advice. Um, and there's some tricky ones there, pay secrecy, sexual harassment, um, even just things about fixed-term contracts. Um, the, the psychosocial risks, I think, is going to be massive in Queensland in particular. And then you've got your fixed-term contracts as well. So enterprise bargaining, of course. So, yes, I think there's this gamut of these, these changes coming through. And, um, yeah, get, us, get in contact, lawyersforemployers.com.au is our website. Come and check it out. It absolutely goes without saying, but I'd like to thank again Jonathan for his time. A lot of critical issues raised in this discussion. I hope you enjoyed the content and particularly the issues raised from a leadership perspective. If you'd like more information regarding how Jonathan and the team can help, please look at the contact details in this podcast and I'll also make the details available in the podcast description. If you like this content, please hit a like and if you want to help me grow the channel, please subscribe. Thanks again for your support and we'll catch you all on the next episode of Talking Leadership TV.